Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode, July's edition of Payroll Question Time. And wow, payroll has really been making the headlines in the last couple of weeks. We're going to go through lots and lots of hot topics today. Uh, first thing to mention for those that may have missed it, and I will mention this again later on in the show, but SD Works actually released the Payroll Proficiency Index. So I'll put a link in the chat in just a moment for those of you interested in finding out more about that. We also heard about net pay top-ups. We learned that the Court of Appeal has overturned the injunction preventing Tesco from removing enhanced pay. It was announced that parents with babies which require neonatal care will now receive paid leave under new law. And we also heard, due to a systems error, that next employees were left a little bit short. Now, in relation to the next payroll issue, it's a shame, really, that payroll departments are often made the scapegoat for broader employee well-being issues, especially when we know that payroll leaders have little influence or control over the ongoing cost of living crisis, soaring inflation and headline making rows over fair pay. But the good news is today I'm bringing you an expert panel, as we always do, here on Payroll Question Time, to give you all the answers you need or the information you require regarding the issues that are impacting payroll today so that collaboratively together on this webinar, we can help all of you ensure that payroll errors are no longer making the headlines. But more importantly, everyone on this call knows that payroll is the gateway to better growth, better retention. We're going to talk about that later on and a more engaged workforce. So let's jump into today's topic discussions then. But the key topics today are going to be working with the HMRC, something that we see loads of discussion about in all the different social platforms. We're going to be talking about the real living wage being brought forward, um, tax avoidance consequences, payroll as a profession, something that I'm hugely passionate about, and of course those hot topics as well. And as I mentioned in my introduction, there is a new SD Works Payroll Proficiency Index for 2022. It's a free insight report. It's available right now. Let's jump into our first topic then, something we see loads and loads of people talking about every single day, which is working with the HMRC. And we've got people on the panel today who are absolute pros at this. They've been doing it for many, many years. I'll love to hear if there is a best practice process for working with the HMRC. Uh, but let's start perhaps with some of the challenges we know people are often uh, coming up against when it comes to using the dashboard. So who would like to kick us off? Perhaps, uh, perhaps Simon, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you being on the, uh, the IRENE committee for different systems bits. This might be your area of expertise. Yeah, sure. So it's been happily involved. Uh, um, I'm not sure what emphasis you put on the word happily, but certainly <laughs> happily involved in the original <laughs> RTI development task force. Uh, when it came in 2010, 11, 12. In fact, I was one of the group of people that was met by David Gork in London before the Conservative Party was even elected, where it was kind of muted that that's what they would do if they won the election. So a little small group of people that met with him. Um, yes, the challenges of HMRC. Um, for many, the HMRC systems work really well. But we're aware that about for 2% of employers, there are some challenges and they can be fairly significant. I'm sure Samantha can join in on some of these aspects as well, potentially, 
because 2% of 1.6 million is actually quite a large number. So it seems small, but it actually affects a large number of employers. And a lot of those actually are probably some of the larger employers as well. So when things go wrong, it can be a challenge on what to do. So one of the areas we probably talk about is the challenges of using the dashboard. So many will have experienced, and we're seeing a number of reports of people seeing that the financial values are appearing all over the place. So you think you've paid a set amount of money, But when you look on the dashboard, it isn't that value. And then you find bits of pieces flying all over the place, um, going backwards in time, some forwards in time. And then at the top, there's probably a value there that says it's unallocated. So sometimes you see a debt owing, so they think money is owing. But on the other hand, they've got some money sat there, which is probably more than the debt that they're chasing for. Um, which says it's unallocated and they're wanting to refund to you. I don't know if you've got any thoughts there, Sam. Uh, you probably have experienced this on the CYPP as well and probably even in practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and uh, exactly that, you know, the, those images, unallocated funds, somehow match exactly to the funds that aren't there in, in, in a pay period. What a coincidence. Um, I, I think... I think there's been there's definitely been progress. You know, ultimately, there's been lots of conversations with HMRC. You know, they they are aware of some of these. And I know one of the big um, one of the big conversations that they've tried to push recently is getting that reference number correct on payments, because there's I think sometimes that can be overlooked and that can ultimately impact their allocation. Um, And I suppose that that's an important one just to remember that everybody's doing, you know, like Simon says, 1.6 million. There is a lot of potential to go wrong there. There is inevitably going to be some challenges when it comes to that dashboard and trying to automate all of this information going in and out and having full visibility of it. But certainly I I would say it's. It's it's just about breaking it down, isn't it? It's about breaking the process down. You know, if you see problems with the dashboard, is my reporting right? Did I submit the FPS? Have I used the right reference? And if you know you've ticked all the boxes on your side, then actually if you go through your contact with HMRC, whatever means that is, whether that's your, um, whether you're doing that as an employer or an agent, then then hopefully if you can say that you've ticked all the boxes that you need to, you can they can help you on the other side to to get whatever's gone on wrong on HMRC's side corrected. So we've, we're already having some questions coming on this. I'm gonna I'm gonna preempt them and ask a quick question myself. And look, I've gone through another issue recently, nothing to do with HMRC, nothing to do with payroll. Of course, I don't need to access the dashboard, so this is new to me. But what I do know is when it comes to sort of retail-based issues, shall we say, or airline issues and things like that, often we can get a quicker response if we go through some of the social platforms and if we wait for hours on the on the telephone or wait for an email response. And we know that HM Revenue and Customs do have a Twitter feed, they are on Instagram and places like that. Has anyone found that sometimes if you really need something desperate, that that can be a quicker route to a response or is it not quite worked the same way? Yeah, that's a tough question, Nick. They certainly are responsive. Um, You're right. So if you go on the Twitter account and follow them, there is tends to be a limit on what they can help with, but they can help point in the right direction. 
And I guess the challenge with the, the help desks often is they're working from, um, dare I say, scripts. So they're not tax or PAY specialists. So they're dealing with typing in elements of your question and seeing what it comes up with. Uh, so sometimes it is difficult. And the terminology use of dealing with an issue is not particularly friendly. So I think we become nervous of it. For us old hats, we don't think anything of it. But the prospect of raising a dispute with HMRC sounds daunting. <laughs> but that's what they call it. But it doesn't mean they're upset with you or you're upset with them necessarily. But there's quite often I hear, well, I can't say I want to open a dispute charge case because they'll put a black mark against me. And it's absolutely, they won't. But if you don't, you won't have your problem fixed. No, and, and we so can't improve a service if we don't tell them there were problems there in the first place. Interestingly, though, let me give a great live example. Uh, Jackie's just put in a little question here, which is, um, or, or something that, an uh, experience that she's gone through, shall we say, that I'm going to read out to you now. So I have an interest charge that they incorrectly charged from tax year 16 to 17. I've been chasing it for two years and have effectively given up. It's been escalated. I've had many calls, numerous emails, but they are a nightmare. It's cost more in my time than the charge itself. So ultimately, I have given up. Now, in my, my personal view would be that's exactly when I would go to Twitter and I'd make a big hullabaloo about it. And you might get a response, but not everyone's comfortable doing those kinds of things. And maybe it wouldn't work. What would be your uh, response to that? I think that's a fairly um, common experience, Nick. The other angle is that sometimes underpayment requests can be fairly trivial. So people often pay them. Um, but payment is actually at a mission of accuracy as a default position. And if it's via a duplication, so duplications usually occur when someone's changed uh, payroll supplier, payroll, or they've got married, or they've moved, or they don't have a national insurance number with them, or a payment after leaving. So there are various reasons why duplications occur. And historically, they used to estimate there are about 2 million a year in duplicate records created inadvertently. They have what they call um, routines or processes that uh, strip out most of them these days, much better than they used to be, so they disappear. But if you had an employee that was um, got uh, changed names or something's not mis quite matched, there might only be a £20 debt. If you pay that £20 debt, we think it goes away and, oh, well, it was worth paying the £20 rather than, than anything. That debt will reappear next month because the duplication is still there. So there's an element of sometimes just paying the underpayment doesn't actually get rid of the problem. It actually makes it worse. So it is a bit of a, uh, you know, a devil's uh, sort of place to be of what do you do? Um, now, Sam and I possibly have some network people that we can interact with, but most employers don't or don't know where to start. But I think there is an element of um, try not to give up to it. But the other angle I think you're talking about, Nick, and probably the question are, uh, questioner is, is I might be on the phone for two and a half hours over 20 quid. Is it worth it? And that's yeah. a very difficult one, except the problem won't go away. Uh, it invariably so won't. Sometimes as a they question, do. 
Simon and Samantha, with, with your experience in working with HMRC, and for those that perhaps haven't had to deal with them too often, is there a point of reference for escalating things? Is there a particular title we could ask for? Say, well, can I escalate this to X, Y, and Z, or an individual, or is there an advanced mailbox or anything like that that perhaps the internal Pearl community can just be aware of to help them with such issues, or is that not that infrastructure not really known? It's not really there. Is um, I'd say Sam may say otherwise, but I don't think there is. There are certain terminologies to use. So uh, occasionally clients will say, "Well, we raised the dispute charge case," and so if I use some of the contacts I have through Irene and the British Computer Society Payroll Specialist Group, because I have some technical contacts with the software development team, if they look at it, they may actually say there's no dispute there at all. But there is a note on the account contact back in a month's time. So they actually haven't escalated anywhere. So there are certain words I'd say to use. I want a resolution team looking at this and solving, or I want a copy of the data. But sometimes you've got to battle. Uh, reminds me a little bit, Nick, in the old days when the children were younger and I phoned home uh, to speak to uh, Tracy, my wife, and I couldn't get past her social secretaries. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes, gatekeepers, as we call them in my world. <laughs> yes. So a couple of questions have come in um, as well. We're just going to run through some of those. One says, comes in from Hannah, that says, I've produced a P11D in error, so I've overpaid HMRC. Do I just adjust this on my next PAYE payment and write to HMRC to confirm? Brilliant question. Uh, yes, and a difficult one to answer because we don't really see the HMRC side, but I would correct it. Uh, can you offset it against the, the next payment? The challenge there is it's a different accounting year. So you're not actually correcting 2022-23, you're correcting 21-22. So it's just be careful because if you do offset it, you may find, as uh, we've talked about earlier, you've got an unallocated amount for the extra amount and a debt and that's generally the experience I think we're seeing lots of people find. Now, it may be that you get a good call center person that will at, at the accounts office that will say, oh, yeah, see what you've done. I'll swap it for you. But sometimes it's getting past the gatekeeper to do that. We've got another uh, question uh, just pop in again. Uh, this is probably for you, Andy, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, being our pensions expert, it says, whose responsibility is it in checking that a pension file from payroll meets the specification of a pension scheme, i.e. if amounts are RAS, RAS, or salary sacrifice? Um, that is actually quite a very good point. So, first of all, as far as pension is concerned, ultimately it's the employer's responsibility to make sure it's right. Obviously, the payroll software provider will have built something in their system to generate the file. But you as an employer to be checking to see if it is right. And, of course, what I think you're getting at is that a RAS contribution is a deduction from someone's pay. Um, normal pension contribution is going to go across as an employee value in the appropriate column on that output file, as opposed to salary sacrifice, where the individual is given up part of their pay in exchange for an employer, an additional employer contribution. So the salary sacrifice plus the normal employer calculated contribution should be added together and submitted as a uh, normally, it would go as in, in the employer contribution column on that uh, data feed over to the pension provider. Possibly they might have a separate column for salary sacrifice and employer contribution, but most of the time it's added together as one value and passed across as an employer contribution. So 
please, as an employer, check your right to check your output file. But be very careful checking your output file because if it is a CSV output file and you open it in Excel, you could end up changing the date formats. So when you save it, you could end up corrupting the file in such a way that when you try and load it, it, it bombs out. So, um, but open it, but don't don't corrupt the original file. Keep the original file to the upload on. Um, that's that's my thoughts that come to me. I don't know if that answers it, so please pop it in the chat if you've got more to do with that. Yeah, put it in the chat. Any more questions? Keep them coming through. I hope that answers your question there, Fiona. Uh, what we've got here as well, we've got uh, some bullet points related to timing, uh, diversity, gender inequality. And actually, I've got a question related to that, which I'll come to in just a moment. So perhaps we can uh, talk about those those bullet points. Uh, coming back to you, Simon. Yes, the timing, that probably comes a little bit with the P11D question we've just had, but also payments occur in the month after the closure of the tax month. So payments are due for the 19th for a tax month that closes on the 5th. But uh, we often see confusion between different pay frequencies and timings and when something's earned and when something's paid. So quite often we've seen a lot of query this year saying that the earnings in March that were paid in April should have really attracted the March national insurance contribution rules, which were, of course, less than April. And the reality is, no, they shouldn't. It's point of payment that counts. And so we have to get that sort of timing register in our heads. So quite often when we're looking at the dashboard, we're thinking this should all match to the current period we're in. However, payment for the current period hasn't happened till the 19th of the month after when we're actually in the middle of a new period. So it becomes confusing for us. So timing becomes critical there. Also, we, we see a lot of negative values that are, are operated in April. So we think we can undo March overpayments of SMP or SSP or national insurance in April where the tax year is closed and you can't. So there is an importance of timing that's going on uh, that relates to this. Plus, when you're transferring, if you move payroll supplier, if your new payroll supplier submits before your old payroll supplier has done its last, then you've got a whole duplication occurrence occur because the payroll ID is going to be different. So timing becomes critical in the process. HMOSI don't handle timing very well. Plus, I think we've had a case recently, haven't we? Um, I think uh, one of our people that Sam and I know have written a little article about the case of the employer that submitted three months of FPS up front and then received penalties for not submitting FPS in the period, but they'd already submitted them. And so, uh, again, it's sort of judging because the debt collection timing is different to the submission timing, which is different to the payment timing. And it's uh, they just don't align very well. They roughly align, but it really confuses. And uh, Samantha, I'll come to you uh, perhaps on the diversity, gender and equality piece. You've had a question come in from from Karen that says with more coming on the ethnicity pay gap reporting, um, which. Um, let's go back to payroll. It is likely that payroll software will include fields in the, is it likely that in, in the future payroll software will include fields, um, like it did for gender pay gap reporting? Do we know anything about that yet? Is that too soon or have we had any inside intel? I understand. 
standing was, and this was earlier this a lot earlier this year. So you'll have to forgive me. I, I believe that there was a, another private members bill, or there was a, a debate in Parliament that was discussing the ethnicity pay gap um, and what could be done, and, and bringing in mandatory reporting. But ultimately, the I think it was a debate in Parliament, and and, and I think the summary that came out of that was look. You know, the, the exposure that the gender pay gap calculation has given to to that um, to that gap is, is really important. The mandatory reporting is really important and it's helped to ultimately bring that gap um, closer. And the same needs to be done for the ethnicity pay gap. I think there was an acknowledgement that that needs to happen. The difference with the ethnicity side is obviously it, it's not. It's not binary. It's not one or the other. There are a number of fields. So if you think from a statistical point of view, comparing A against B is very, very straightforward, really. Although I'm sure people who've done gender pay gap calculations will um, disagree with me ever so slightly. Um, but ultimately, if you have all of the different ranges of ethnicity, it's how you, you know, do you group them? Do you compare them individually? How does all of that happen to enable us to create a statistical output from that? And there was an acknowledgement within in that debate that, look, that's the challenge. It's not that we think it's a bad idea that we need to have have an ethnicity pay gap as a mandatory reporting requirement. It's how do we physically report on that and how do we capture that data? And from where my knowledge is up to date, and Simon, you might know a bit more than me, um, I, I don't believe that that has been progressed any further. I think there's been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion and acknowledgement that it's the right way to go. But the, the logical requirement to build a formula around that is really challenging. Um, someone, someone challenged, did someone challenge the gender pay gap reporting or the, the male, female options on a, a categorization quite recently? Didn't that go further? And I don't know what the final outcome was. Well, I, I, I don't think that that's that's really progressed. I mean, it's probably fair to say, from an employment law perspective, or indeed a, a wider perspective, than than gender identity is is something of a hot topic uh, across the board uh, at the moment. Uh, and uh, I, I would have thought that it may be triggered by a gender recognition certificate um, is probably the, the the current position that we're in. Uh, and if you've got that. Um, then that would would apply, but in other circumstances, it, it probably wouldn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else we need to add on this uh, this uh, diversity, gender, and equality um, aspect in relation well, to challenges of working with the HMRC, Simon? I know you're about to make a point. Yeah, and this is where it comes in. So we'll we'll get a number of inquiries, not many, but we do get a number of inquiries. And uh, in relation to the reporting that I think the questioner was asking on ethnicity applies to gender pay gap. And, and John may be able to comment, but to a certain extent for gender pay gap reporting, I can choose whatever gender I want to be. But for taxation purposes, I can't. But we certainly get a number of requests. We've got some clients that want to be uh, inclusive, uh, etc., that have in effect asked us to remove gender from the pay reporting altogether. However, if you remove gender from the pay gap report, from gen, gender from payroll, you can't submit data to HMRC. They won't accept it. If 
that they'll reject your whole return. So even if you've got an individual who doesn't want to be identified as either, if you don't identify them, they don't take anything and then you're into penalties. And so from a taxation point of view, you can only be male or female. But from a gender pay gap point of view, you could be something else. And and um, and you could actually change your mind to a certain extent. I mean, John may say it's not really quite that uh, liberal, but um, but for taxation purposes, it's not liberal. But for gender pay gap reporting, you can change. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's there's, there's a, a a spectrum, isn't there? And uh, you know, some people are one end of the spectrum, others than the other. Some non-binary and and some change. So we have uh, we have gender fluidity as well, where that's going to become you know absolutely, yeah, And we've got P45s. We've got one more question coming. I'm going to come to you right at the end of this before we open our first poll. So do get ready for that, everybody. But um, just want to tackle the P45 element of uh, the challenge of the HMRC before we uh, move on to our final question, if we can. Yeah, this is possibly related to determination 80s they're called and the operations so we're very professional people as peril professionals aren't we we want to do the right thing but invariably these days the p45 doesn't turn up for paid first payday and it comes in late so we then think we've got to apply this document but we had the agent notice which we've talked about before which is basically telling you not to uh, so if you haven't had the p45 before payday ignore it apart from the student loan questions um my understanding at the moment is that the new starter checklist is going through the same process so quite often we don't get the new starter checklist until later or the starter checklist and actually we may find that the wording changes and says if you haven't applied this on the first day don't do anything because hmrc will tell you what to do and so it's just watching that. But there's certainly been cases where people have applied them late. Um, the tax code has probably come in electronically and jumps it, but the P45 has replaced it. And then the employer ends up with a debt because the employee blames the employer for getting it wrong. So that's the only reason is just watch out for starters. But the propensity for P45s being late, I think, is probably at its highest now than it's uh, probably ever been. Well, Fiona's asked here, and I think this is something we've had before on payroll question time, but it says, um, is HMRC thinking of banishing P45s just due to the sheer number of duplications of data that can be sent in various formats? I, I think they will revisit it. Of course, um, they were going to in 2012, if we remember, but we all uh, you know, went got our banners and uh, wanted to keep our P45 and uh, they got rid of the P46 at the time well they didn't they brought out something else called a starter checklist which looks remarkably like a P46 but then applied it even to P45s Um, I think it's something they will look at again because I think we as an industry are starting to say what's the point of it now so let's talk about the national living wage, and if we can jump to the next slide, something, a sort of real living wage, rather, something we, we're seeing a lot of the news at the moment, uh, obviously, because it's been brought forward. Um, let's start with that as maybe as the first bullet point. It's been brought forward from November to September. Uh, Simon, if you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, sure. So the real living wage is a voluntary code established by the Living Wage Foundation. And actually, they brought out something new. Maybe I'll 
mentioned that, called the living hours. So they're having employers sign up to the real living wage or the living wage, the London living wage, and now they've introduced a new thing, which is probably in a half dozen to a, a dozen employers at the moment, called living hours, which is to tackle the zero hours type contract position, cancellations, change. So a code of conduct for people to follow. But the living wage is coming into the highlight because of the cost of living. Um, because of the cost of the living, they're bringing it forward two months earlier. Uh, so we don't know what the rates will be. It's usually higher than the national living wage. So the national living wage, national minimum wage are government set. To breach them is potentially criminal activity in relation to the living wage. It's a voluntary code that an employer signs up to and says they'll abide. If they're found not to, you'd find yourselves kicked off the list. That's all. There won't be any financial penalty, etc. Now, there are differences because the living wage is about a rate of pay. National living wage is about a rate received. So it's not necessarily about a rate of pay. We think it is, but it's not. When you're audited, they'll actually find out what the end hourly rate was, not what the beginning hourly rate was. The living wage sends, sets a beginning rate, not an end rate, which is uh, where the national uh, rates come into effect. So that's why it's been brought forward. But tell us how, how, what exactly what it is and how it is different, just to make it really clear, because we're seeing a lot of confusion, particularly in the social chat groups i've seen payroll people talking about this a lot and asking this question about how it differs from the national minimum wage and what if you can just make those uh, those definitions for us yeah well george osborne confused everybody didn't he when he announced the launch of the, the living wage actually existed before so the living wage is not legal it's not enforceable apart from uh being a member of the club and potentially being thrown out of it, uh, whereas National Living Wage was announced by George Osborne in the Cameron government, brought in a, a higher rate than the then National Minimum Wage for those aged 25 and above. And, of course, for the past year or two, it's been from age 23, and it's actually going to drop to 21. Now, that is legally enforceable, and an employer that doesn't pay those rates, as I said before, is actually potentially committing a crime. Uh, so the living wage is to promote better pay for people, better employment conditions, because when you do that, of course, their philosophy will be you get better workers, better productivity, better outcomes, and the employee and employer are a lot happier. So it is a voluntary code, which now a significant number of employers have joined and they're recruiting all the time, gaining popularity. The rate in London is higher. So um, and uh, so if you're within the boundaries of the London area, you'd have to pay the higher rate to workers who are there. But uh, they've got the is it the um, area of Newham, which is where the Excel Centre becoming a living wage area. So the intention there with the mayor of uh, Newham is and Sadiq Khan is that all employers pay the living wage not the national minimum wage or national living wage. Does that help a little bit? Yes, that's for me. Anything you'd like to add to that, Samantha? Um, I 
suppose just to say that, you know, it, it is definitely an opportunity for employers to to look at their attraction and retention strategy. And I think a lot of people, we, we've seen an increase in the people signing up to the living wage for exactly that reason. I think it, it, it almost doubled, if, if, I, if my numbers are, are right, um, within the last sort of three to four years, because ultimately, um you know, if they can show that they're paying a higher wage than than is is required by statute, if they can show that they um, are paying people above the age of 18 as well, that's the other big difference that it applies to everybody above the age of 18, then it, it is a great attraction and retention strategy. And, and as I'm sure you know, Nick, you know, the, that is, is absolutely key to a lot of employers out there at the moment. Uh, although you may be paying the real living wage, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're paying the national minimum wage, um, because there are a whole host of deductions that, that you know may be made uh, from an employee's pay, uh, for for example, uniforms, um, etc. Uh, and so, just because you're paying the real living wage doesn't necessarily mean that you're paying the correct national minimum wage rates. Have you ever asked yourself? How can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Really good point. Well, actually, this kind of brings us nicely with the two subjects we started with to bring us into our next topic. We've talked about HMLC dashboards. We finished there with John's just making sure people are very careful. Let's talk about some of the tax avoidance consequences then, um, because, again, this is something that's really a really a hot topic in some of the social channels that I've been following. Um, we know as well that uh, HMRC are, are, are naming and shaming some offending companies now. There's been some updates in relation to R35 and some of the umbrellas, including some quite public cases that have been uh, been mentioned. Um, yeah, let's uh, perhaps Simon, you can kick us off here. Uh, sure. There's been, yes, about three or four months ago, the first naming of uh, avoidance schemes was made. So under new powers, HMRC can name people, uh, name organisations. Um, they can't necessarily close those organisations down, which is the interesting aspect. So some of them are closed down and some of them are still going, but their names with a warning to their customers that uh, HMRC will pursue them for the tax avoidance. So there's a number of them. They all tend to be outsourcing or umbrella companies uh, type structures. I'm not saying that all umbrellas are bad umbrellas. Uh, some let water through, I guess, and others protect you from the rain. But uh, but they all seem to be. So there's things like T2 outsourcing, Absolute outsourcing, Novus Consultants Limited. These are all companies named by them. Paybox Umbrella, uh, Peak PAYE Limited that show an accreditation scheme on them, uh, uh, Purple Pay Limited Equity Participation Scheme and Saxon Side Limited have all been named over these past. The list has grown rapidly. But in effect, they're operating 
uh, avoidance schemes, usually paying um, people uh, national minimum wage and finding amounts. If you look at some of the examples that HMRC, because you think, well, this is national minimum wage, of course, these are low paid people, finding that uh, that national minimum wage payment only counts for about 20% of their income. The other 80% is used through various avoidance schemes to not pay tax on national insurance, some offshoring, some using vehicles, some using loans, some using expense sort of means, um, but uh, uh, some advertising that they're perfectly legal and got barristers' opinions that they are. Yeah, HMRC have now enforced powers to say, um, stop using these people, uh, we're going to come for you. Plus, we've had the uh, some more recent rulings under IR35, certainly in the uh, media industry, of uh, cases where HMRC have won, where um, there seems to be some avoidance. Yeah, great point. I mean, we we obviously deal with a lot of umbrella companies in in recruitment as well with contractors that we're placing, and you have to be really, really careful. Um, what I will say is you can, some people may well say they are accredited, but you can check it with the FCSA, which is a, a company that does help the, the freelance contractor services organization, which do provide an accreditation to a lot of the umbrella companies. Um, and what they do is they, you have to go through various assessments and audits and things to get approved. But um, that can sometimes be helpful to look at if you are working with umbrellas to at least see they've got some kind of accreditation because they do have to uh, approve their internal policies are in line with HMRC rules and regulations in order to get that approval. I'll put a link in the, in, in the chat. Um, but you'll also see a lot of people now in, in terms of not just naming and shaming of businesses, but a lot of individuals that manage those businesses, the entrepreneurs have set them up uh, also very much in the news and have been, uh, there have been some prosecutions and things quite recently, which you would have seen if you're, if you're following those kind of news channels where there have been some unscrupulous, uh, shall we say, umbrella businesses uh, being caught out. Um, anything you want to add to that, Samantha, in your experience? Because obviously you, you deal with uh, more like businesses, but on the contractual side, I don't know how, how involved you are with, with our 35 contractors yourself, but maybe you've come across this. And I suppose the only thing I would add is, is what you were saying there around the individual prosecutions. I think that is a really important route to for HMRC to pursue because ultimately, you know, the, the big challenge around umbrella companies is how quick they can set themselves up. So naming and shaming is it's great and it's a positive step. But unless you're dealing with the individuals that are ultimately doing this behaviour, then there's just going to be a new name, a new, a new, you know, orange umbrella company or whatever they label themselves that won't have this HMRC t- um, uh, naming and shaming offence against it. So uh, we've got the loan scheme and reimbursed travel costs, which are not tax free, which are a couple of other consequences here, uh, which may be worth just bringing to attention. I've, I've put the link to the FSCA for the FCSA rather for those that are interested to help safeguard you, I should mention, into the chat notes. But um, talk us a little bit about the loan scheme, Simon. Well, the, the loan scheme we've heard of some years ago, of course, and, and uh, the potential people jumping off buildings sort of threat. And, uh, but it's been established for some time that they don't work. Now, a number of these schemes, and through some of these umbrellas and other organisations, PEYE, were operating a pseudo loan scheme. So, in effect, they were trying. The, the basis of the loan scheme was that basically directors were 
loaning themselves vast amounts of money from their business, which they'd never repay. And I think some of these others have kind of, you know, now that that's been ruled unlawful and the courts are um, saying it's unlawful and people are being uh, having uh, vast amounts of tax recovered from those free loans that were never being paid. Then we found that some of these other companies have all have launched something similar except the loan isn't from the business to them, it's from another organisation, which then liquidates and never collects the loan. Does that make sense? So I guess the HMRC view is, what's the difference? So they've constructed in a slightly different ways and kind of taken the individual um, entity away. And some of them have been found, in, in the case of one of them, transferred the loan out to Anguilla and places like that to then liquidate so that you don't have to pay it. And of course, they take a sizable proportion of the amount. So your income might be, say, £100,000. You get £80,000 tax-free. They keep £20,000 for facilitating it. And uh, if you'd had to pay tax, you'd have probably only got 40000 So you're better off, aren't you, in the end? It's that sort of thing, or 50000 So you're actually £30,000 better off. Why wouldn't you do it? Well, why wouldn't you do it? It's because HMRC will come after the tax on 100000 The fact you've paid £20,000 to someone else will count for nothing. And so you could say, so the loan scheme we know went, but we've got these people popping up doing different variants of the same thing. And that's the same with the reimbursed travel costs and, and, and things like that. I think that we're finding that people are constructing means to avoid tax, and that's what HMRC are worried about. And so we're seeing these convoluted schemes. But uh, But yes, the reimbursement was for commuting, I believe, and, uh, of course, ordinary commuting is not tax-free. Yeah, I was going to pick up a, 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 a few points. Um, one, when you referred to the FCSA, Nick, um, in terms of the, the contract that, that we're drafting uh, for clients, uh, and we obviously flag uh, issues of risk uh, with umbrella companies, uh, and often we'll build in a contractual provision that if an umbrella is going to be used, and then it can only be an FCA-approved umbrella, uh, which, which hopefully provides some degree of, of control further down the, the contractual chain um, in terms of that. Um, I, I was, there's a, a point that says IR35 umbrella uh, update, but it's more sort of uh, IR35. And um, I suppose it's, it's more thematic rather than anything else, just to sort of give some thoughts, I suppose, about how businesses have, have reacted or, or changed to the new rules that came in in 2021, which had the effect really of transferring the, the risk and responsibility for assessing whether a, a, anyone fell inside or outside IR35 away from the contractor and onto the hiring uh, organisation, really. But... Um, so a, a few things, certainly from the, the public sector experience, there was a, a fairly recent survey uh, of public sector organisations. And the overall conclusion was that there really hadn't been much change in the use of contractors. Uh, and actually, there had been perhaps some slight increase. And of course, at, at the time, there was a, a feeling that there may be a drop off 
in contractors, but in but the public sector that hasn't really happened. Um, there was a, a feeling that it was is harder in the in the public sector to uh, attract talent, uh, but that was more a reflection of skill shortages rather than anything else. Uh, and what was interesting uh, out of the survey was that a lot of the public sector had an intention at the outset uh, to ban PSEs, personal service companies, uh, a move to payroll. But in actual fact, in most cases, it didn't happen. Um, what it did show in the survey was that almost no public sector organisations were doing blanket assessments. Uh, it was only 1% of them that were doing that. So that's a, a positive thing. But I think what you also drew from you know, recent uh, recent events is that it's sometimes not easy to get it right, and certainly not in the public sector, uh, given that the fairly significant penalties which they suffered through not getting their IR35 uh, assessments right. Um, what I would say from uh, the private sector uh, perspective, there is still a lack of awareness in the private sector about IR35. Uh, and where are we sort of, you know, 15 months, 16 months on? Uh, we're still getting quite a lot of queries which start with, uh, I've heard about IR35, but I'm not quite sure what it is. So there is still a fairly significant amount of, of that out in, in the private sector. It's probably less, less so in, in larger organisations, but when you get down to SME level, um, there's a, a clearly a, a lesser understanding um, of that. Um, there's still a significant number of organisations in our experience who are banning the use of PSCs um, in the supply chain because they just don't want to have any form yeah. of IR35 risk at all. So that's still fairly uh, prevalent. We've seen a lot of that in recruitment as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of that and, and that sort of links back into um, the, the umbrella issue because there's been a huge rise. Um, in umbrella company contractors, uh, and I think it's doubled to about 600,000 now, and that's uh, over the last 10 years uh, or so. Uh, and so there's been a real move to migrating uh, individuals to uh, umbrella companies. Uh, and certainly I haven't seen any appetite from anyone to be engaging someone on an IR35 basis. Um, it's a real move to umbrellas. Um, but what that does, I think, throw into fairly sharp focus um, is something which is, is often missed uh, by hirers, and that's to ensure that you've got adequate and proper due diligence uh, of your supply chain. Uh, because, you know, let's face it, we, we live in a world where, you know, supply chains are getting longer and longer. Uh, and do you know who is in your supply chain uh, and how do you carry out, you know, appropriate due diligence? Uh, and do you have sort of reasonable procedures in place to prevent tax evasion in the supply chain? Because if you don't, that may come back to bite you. And uh, I think there was some guidance uh, which was produced in May 2021 from the government, which gives a steer on the type of due diligence that you should be doing. And we know for a lot of organisations, their starting point is, well, here we are. We've got the contract. You know, it flows down through the supply chain. That's job done. But it isn't. I think there's a real emphasis now on doing proper, probably more detailed than you have previously, due diligence on your supply chain. Uh, and I think that the, the final point is, is with umbrella companies uh, looking to the future, uh, I would suspect uh, that there's going to be some form of licensing regime 
uh, in respect of umbrella companies, possibly at some point. Uh, if there isn't, my view is that there probably should be. Let's jump into uh, our last subject here, because I want to make sure we've got time to get to hot topics. We want to talk about the Harper Trust versus Brazil uh, Supreme Court ruling as well. So I want to make sure we just not, not overlook this too quickly, because it's an incredibly important subject area, but make sure we've got time to get to those hot topics. But the last question for us is really hail as a profession. This is something that actually myself and Samantha did a lot of work on when Samantha was still with the CIPP. And um, so I'm going to ask you and, and bring this to you, Samantha, on the back of some of that work, really. How do you feel in terms of the profession, qualifications are currently aligned in relation to the new complexities that we've experienced in the world of payroll. Do you think there's still, there's still further work that needs to be done? Are we now in line with the new world of work? I think within the payroll profession itself, there are the qualifications out there and the opportunity to to get what you need that suits you in a nice variety now, you know, we've got apprenticeships, we've got options with the CIPP and other providers that, that you can go down. Unfortunately, I, I still don't think there is enough expectation that payroll professionals have qualifications, have the necessary experience, have that compliance knowledge going into the role. We're, we're still struggling with that, with that profile. Um, whether that be in-house, whether that be as a payroll service provider, there's still more work to do to make it really, really clear. And, and sometimes it's not qualification. Sometimes it is experience and, and knowledge, but obviously qualifications help embed that. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's more there's more work to do. There really is because the, you know, the 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 amount of things that we have to understand and we have to be able to do to deliver a great and compliant service are just growing in complexity as the years go by. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, the complexity as we as these webinars show, right, it changes all the time. And often our expert panel even sometimes are fully stumped on the way that the, the speed of the industry moves. I think something from my perspective as a recruiter that I still think is very much lacking, although the qualifications exist, I don't think they pop into people's minds initially. And that's very much around um, leadership and coaching in particular, which I think is an essential skill as we go forward. I know that the CIPP do offer an MSc in leadership. That's quite a high level qualification and it's, it's, a, it's a significant investment of time. But I do think they're, they're probably people need to consider courses that aren't always about legislation if you want to get to the top of the payroll profession. Because I think skills in coaching in particular, you know, we've moved away from the command and control method of, of, of management and we're moving into a, a coaching mindset, really. But I think coaching is absolutely a skill that, that needs to be, you know, that needs to be developed and honed. And I don't think there are many that I'm seeing pale professionals undertaking those kind of qualifications. And I think it'd be really interesting and exciting for me to see perhaps more people undertake that kind of qualification to help them become better leaders and coaches of the future. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Samantha, as someone who is leading a big team in the world of payroll. What, what's your experience on, on, on the leadership side of things? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you, Nick. Difficult, isn't it? Because they're a skill that you need experience to develop. Courses will do so much for you, but you almost need your own coach and mentor to develop those skills um, as a leader. So it, it's going that, uh, at that experience and with the qualification hand in hand. But I think for me, those sort of the payrolls that really are looking at the administration, the advisors, the administrators, that's where the question comes from, and that's where the compliance piece comes in, because ultimately that that's where the, the big chunk of the work is done. And the leadership is then just about 
making sure that all of those cogs are turning, that the strategy is right, that the motivation is there, that the team are happy and uh, and ultimately in a great environment to, to deliver payroll in the right way. Yeah, well, I couldn't, it's hard for me to argue against the uh, the legislation side of things. But what I would say is, and we look at it where people are moving. I like to have a debate about this all day, which is great. But everything's valid. I can't I can't argue against the validity, the validity of uh, and legislation. However, one of the biggest reasons people are looking to move, and we call it the Great Resignation or the Great Awakening, whatever way you want to term it, is because people don't necessarily always feel like they're being invested in enough and invest to know where people where you need to put that investment in people's development often comes with asking questions and asking questions of course is a coaching uh, mentality a coaching style of leadership and I think sometimes if we go too far down the mentoring route or sometimes just only educating what you think people need to know without always knowing what they want to know sometimes there can be a disconnect where people the managers can feel like they are investing but actually the employees below don't necessarily feel like they're being invested in the right spaces um, it's really it's a really interesting um, area of topic and conversation. All I do know is there's an absolute yearning for payroll professionals to want to learn more. You know, it's it's an industry where everyone really wants to progress. There's, they, they really want to learn. They want to develop a, a host of different skills. And of course, we've seen I think together we identified over 60 different career pathways, didn't we, Samantha, for payroll professionals now. So, you know, there's also skills outside of coaching and leadership, which lead into change management um, Six Sigma lean management principles and and other areas of business as well, which could be really, really beneficial if you're a payroll professional that wants to develop their career in a slightly different, different route. And of course, you've done that yourself, moving from payroll management into the policy type role at CIPP and back into a directorship level role now as well. From your perspective, Sam, how did that um, how was that adjustment for you? challenging is is what I would say. You know, every adjustment that I've been through has been really, really challenging, has really pushed my sort of problem solving abilities and then everything else but I think if you don't step into a role that challenges you then it's probably not the right role for you if you feel like oh well this feels really familiar and and, and, oh yeah I'm settling straight in here then then you aren't pushing yourself and you aren't pushing your potential and and you know I would really encourage people to to do exactly that step into a role that's out of your comfort zone if you are if you're thirsty for knowledge if you're thirsty for um for growth then then just go ahead and do it and don't wait for your employer to come to you either you know if you want a qualification you can go out there and do it but equally use things like payroll question time use all of the the other resources that are out there for payroll professionals because you can really enhance your own knowledge with with a lot of free resources to make an evidence that to any employer that wants to have a discussion with you then because ultimately it's the interview that that is is where you're going to get those roles isn't it absolutely right and last i'm going to ask one quick point i want to make sure we do have time for that supreme court ruling uh mentioned with john andy question for you do you think the training providers are doing enough in terms of putting enough emphasis on incorporating the pension side of payroll into the training? And we see a lot of qualifications related to payroll. But what about the pensions element? Is there do you think payroll professionals are getting the, the, enough technical payroll expertise in the training? That's offered? Pension is key because payroll is, you know, making sure automatic enrollment works. And um, if I'm doing the um, Be Knowledgeable webinar in the middle of August for CIPP, which is on automatic enrollment and pensions. Um, and most of the training companies do do pensions 
of some form, but actually is quite a significant area. And always legislation gives you lots of interesting opportunities to learn. Um, so, and, and my view of what I've experienced from the inspections we do, for instance, if we're going to go and meet a large employer, any employer, we want to speak to the payroll person. I want the payroll manager there or the person in the payroll team who's going to be doing the pension side. Because then I know I'm talking to the person that knows what they're talking about for that organization. So I want those people to be fully trained up. And I think the level of knowledge in automatic enrollment has slipped. In 2012, when it was rolled out, people said, I've got to know, I've got to know. Lots of courses, lots of information. And I think the knowledge has dropped. That's my experience. Well, back in the day, it used to be all about payroll and pensions managers, often just payroll managers now, and that pension element often gets forgotten. And then when they do yeah. need to find it, it's a little bit more challenging. But let's, let's jump to uh, the hot topics. We've got a bit of time to tackle some of these. Time. I wonder if I can come to you, John. We've talked about the Harper Trust versus Brazil Supreme Court ruling. If, uh, if you're okay to set the floor. Yeah, of course. What it relates to is a, a case concerning holiday pay uh, and what the correct payment of holiday pay is. And just to provide some context to it, uh, the claimant in this case, uh, which has, has gone all the way through from the Employment Tribunal through to the, the Supreme Court, uh, was employed under a zero hours contract as an employee. Now, the claimant generally worked term time only, and that's referred to in the Supreme Court as a part year employee. Uh, and so across the, the three terms of, of the school, because she was a, a music teacher at the school, um, she was paid holiday at the end of each term. Uh, and the basis on which she was paid holiday was 12.07% uh, of the hours that had been worked in each term. And of course, that's always been a fairly common uh, method of paying uh, employees, particularly those who have got fairly uh, irregular working patterns. And the, the way that the 12.07% is calculated is that you take the 52 weeks in the year, you, you take off the 5.6 week statutory holiday, which gives you 46.4 weeks, and 5.6 weeks is 12.07% uh, of that. And in the Supreme Court, that's what's referred to as the percentage method uh, of working out holiday pay. So th- this case, when did it weigh through the, the court's uh, system? Uh, and I suppose in a, in a fairly succinct summary, um, what they held initially was that part-year uh, employees are, are entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday pay. Uh, you don't prorate that uh, in some way. And I, I think it's been a uh, a frustration for both me and Simon at, at various times uh, that people assume that holiday uh, accrues in some way uh, as a facet uh, of working, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, you accrue holiday as a facet of being an employee rather than actually doing any work. So the next thing that the Supreme Court held was that the correct method uh, was set out uh, in the regulations concerning holiday pay. Uh, And the correct way to uh, assess holiday pay uh, should be an average of earnings. Uh, And this case is is so old uh, that at the time that was earnings in the last 12 weeks, but of course that's now changed to 52 weeks. 
So you assess average earnings in the 52 weeks before the holiday is taken, which is referred to as in the Supreme Court as the calendar week method. Now, one of the things that this results if you use the calendar work method is that those who are working on a part year basis uh, potentially get more in terms of holiday pay than those who work on a permanent full time basis. Because if you're working standard hours on a, a full time basis, the, the 12.07% works right. But if you're a part year worker, you potentially get more. And in this case, that meant that the holiday pay was 17.5% of average earnings. And Harper Trust, who were defending this case, uh, their argument that this was more favourable treatment for part-time workers. Uh, and the answer to that is, yes, it is a more favourable treatment for those part-time workers. But the part-time workers' regulations prevent part-time workers being treated less favourably than those full-time, it doesn't prevent them being treated more favourably. And so Harper Trust put forward some alternative methods of calculating holiday pay, but the Supreme Court held that those were all really departures from the way that the statutory scheme operated, uh, which is the 52-week look-back. So we've got some clarity on how it should be calculated, uh, and in fairness, after the Court of Appeal decision in 2020, uh, ACAS changed their guidance on how to calculate holiday pay uh, and removed reference to the 12.07% being an acceptable way of doing it. Uh, and in fairness, the 12.07% was always uh, something of a, of a construct uh, and doesn't appear in any of the legislation. Um, but there are some uh, potential anomalies that arise out of this that could be potentially troubling, uh, particularly uh, if you have those who are on a permanent zero hours contract. And one of the examples that was given in the Court of Appeal was a cricket coach who's employed on a permanent zero hours contract. Now, the cricket coach uh, works in the first week of the year uh, and he's paid £1,000 for that week. He then doesn't work for most of the rest of the year, but is still on his zero hours contract and decides that he's going to take his holiday towards the end of the year. Because he's only worked one week in that year, his average earnings for that year are £1,000. So technically, when he takes 5.6 weeks holiday, he's entitled to be paid £5,600, which is significantly more than what he's earned during the whole year. Uh, and the various courts have said, well, that, that's just a, a facet of the way that the scheme works, uh, and rather poo-pooed the idea that these were realistic uh, anomalies. Uh, but I'm not so sure that they are. So it is going to require some head-scratching uh, for organisations um, who operate uh, on this type of basis, how they are going to deal with it. Uh, and certainly they may have to change some of their structures uh, and ways of working to deal with that, because this may apply to casual workers on a zero hours contract as well, or, although that's somewhat up in the air. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of organisations that are going to be troubled potentially by this. 
uh, and there may be some claims for back pay which are being made in respect of holiday uh, as a result of this. Um, finally, just kind of looping back to uh, umbrella companies, um, could be a, a fairly significant issue for them uh, as well. Uh, and again, that looped back even further to my point about doing adequate and appropriate due diligence uh, on your supply chains, um, because if you're using umbrella companies uh, who may not be uh, accredited, uh, do you know the level of their financial worth? Uh, and if they have these claims which are then put in for back holiday pay, uh, whether they're going to be able to cover that type of pay. So for me, it all kind of loops back to, to the due diligence point. So, so in summary, we've got a clear conclusion from the, court, the Supreme Court as to how you should be dealing with it. Uh, the next stage is, is working out how you're going to react to that, uh, which is a little bit more tricky, uh, particularly for those who are employees, I, I think, rather than workers. Sure. Wow. That was a really, uh, really good explanation of a really complex subject. I've had, I've struggled to get my head around. So thank you uh, for that. There's a few hot topics here as well. Did, are you familiar with the Court of Overpeal? Uh, court of Appeal, rather, overturning the injunction um, from Tesco moving enhanced payers. Are you able to bring us up to speed on that? Yeah, I can. I mean, it's it's, it's a case which is, I, I think, slightly consigned to, to, to its own facts. But, but what it really related to was, was going back to, to I think, about um, 2007, uh, when Tesco decided that they need to sort of reorganise uh, and close some distribution centres uh, and effectively relocate people to different distribution um, centres. And uh, they unionised, uh, and in the collective uh, agreement, um, there were various things that, that were agreed um, because they got effectively some enhancement, which was termed retained pay, for making the move to other distribution centres. Uh, and Tesco gave, uh, on the face of it, some fairly broad assurances uh, as to what would happen to their pay. Um, for example, saying it couldn't be negotiated uh, away uh, would increase um, each year. Um, and uh, also uh, that in terms, it, it wouldn't be removed. Uh, and it went to the High Court uh, because Tesco was saying, well, we want to remove it. And we're going to go down the, the tried and tested route of changing terms and conditions if they don't agree of terminating their employment and rehiring on lesser terms. And when it went to the High Court, they took the view that Tesco weren't able to do this. Uh, but then it went to the Court uh, of Appeal and they held that it could because the wording wasn't precise enough to stop Tesco hiring uh, and rehiring. Um, so Tesco managed to do what it wanted. But it's probably fair to say that uh, hire and fire, uh, again, is a, a relatively hot topic um, uh, at the moment, uh, particularly arising out of uh, the price issues of uh, P&O uh, and what they did. Uh, and as a result of, of, of that to a degree, there is going to be a new statutory code of practice, uh, which will be published on fire uh, and rehire. And uh, as far as I can see, it's not going to prevent fire and rehire as a way of changing terms and conditions, but it is subject to an obligation for fair, transparent and meaningful consultation uh, about it, which is probably fair to say seems to be rather lacking uh, in the P&O uh, case.
Uh, and also, if you don't comply with that, there could be a 25% uplift in compensation if you don't follow the statutory code. So it, it seems to me at the moment there isn't a great deal of government enthusiasm uh, for banning fire and hire. They're just looking to regulate it uh, to a degree uh, and to a certain extent largely round the edges. Excellent. Brilliant. And just to remind everyone, the SD Works Pale Proficiency Index 2022 is available. It's completely free. You can find it at sdworks.com. Do have a look at that if you can. Uh, Just to remind you all, there is no payroll question time in August. So we'll be back on September the 30th. Just leaves me to say a huge thank you to all of our panel today. And I hope you all will have a wonderful summer holiday. For those that have a chance to take a long holiday in payroll, enjoy yourselves rejuvenate and we'll look forward to bringing you all back the next episode on the 30th of September. Thank you, everybody, and goodbye. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.